0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This uh, story comes really as part of what uh, Nate shared from last Sunday. Uh, Jesus is at a banquet or not a banquet. He's at a a meal hosted by the Pharisees and religious leaders. And they've been grilling him with questions. Uh, And uh, Jesus uh, in the verses just before this, just gave the instructions that when you throw a a dinner like this, you shouldn't invite all your friends and people who can repay you. You should invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And, 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 if you do that, he says, you will be blessed on the day of resurrection. Uh, when, the, when the living come again, you will receive blessing. And uh, this guy pipes up at the, at the table and he says uh, kind of a blessing quote to everybody. He said, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom. Um, and for the Jews, what that meant was um, a, a a banquet or a feast was a way you celebrated. Okay. Does anybody ever celebrate one of your favorite holidays without food? <laughs> well, that's what it's all about, right? It's about good food. And uh, that was true in Israel in the old Testament. They celebrated their feasts, uh, their, their celebrations with feasts. And part of the picture of that was that uh, it was a sign of God's blessing and celebrating. And so much was, the celebration and the food combined, that they looked toward the kingdom, the time of the resurrection, as being a great banquet, a great feast. So it really came to be a picture of the end time when God would have his great final judgment and he would judge between the just and the unjust. The just would come in and they would sit down at this great banquet. So he says, blessed are those who eat at that banquet. And really what's underneath that statement is this. Blessed are we, because surely we're going to be there. Aren't we a happy lot? We Pharisees and religious elite and religious rulers, because uh, God has. we are God's chosen people, so that, that's you know, that's our advantage. But we're the elite, we're the serious of God's chosen people. Surely we are among those blessed. And not only that, but we are the wealthy, uh, successful, and therefore we, we must have God's blessing on our life. Surely of us, we are those blessed. Let's give ourselves a hand. Yay, right? Amen. Well, uh, Jesus may have had a different opinion about the whole thing, as we see from the parable. Uh, it's interesting, this question, this, this thing, you know, who, who goes to heaven? And, and really the question behind that is really who wants to go to heaven? Um, have you ever talked to somebody who did not want to go to heaven? Well, there are a few, right? A few hardcore staunch atheists are so stubbornly set against God that, that they don't want to be there. But the, majority, the overwhelming majority of people I've ever talked to, if you, if you say, where, do, where will you go when you die? Where do you want to go when you die? They will say heaven, right? Uh, and that was true of the Pharisees. They wanted heaven. They saw heaven as a blessing and as something to be pursued and desired, and that's true for, for most people. But the real question is, what do people really mean by that? When people say, when, when this man said he wants to go to heaven, he wants to live in that blessing, what does he really mean by that? When people in the world today say, yeah, you know, so-and-so died, and, and even though they were against God their whole life, and they never went to church, and they never prayed, and they never had anything to do with God, we know now that they're in their heavenly home, and they're in a better place. It's like, well, that's all good and wonderful. What do you really mean by that? Somebody who never wanted anything to do, God is now tormented forever with his presence, right? What do we mean by this desire to be in heaven? Well, I think the way it gets presented, what we really mean is this. When we die, we only have two options, that being heaven or hell. Which would you rather have, right? Well, of course, nobody wants hell, Nobody wants the judgment and destruction and suffering and pain that's described by that. And so they say, well, yeah, I don't want the negative. I'll take, I'll take the next best thing, which in this case is heaven. But, but here's the real question. And this is how Jesus rephrases the question. Because Jesus, for Jesus, the kingdom was not something that was about dying after this life that we look forward to when all of our other options are gone and all that's left is heaven or hell. Uh, Jesus says earlier, he says, the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. It's close. You are now confronted here today with the kingdom of God. And given the options you have now, what would you rather have? Heaven or, you know, the Colorado Rockies. Heaven or the Swiss Alps. Heaven or a beach resort on some island in the Fijis. Right? Given those options, what would you choose? And the reality is that most people today would choose many other things besides heaven, right? If it's a, if it's a choice that's about here and now, today, entering God's kingdom or living, continuing in the kingdom of the world, uh, what is it that people really want, right? What is it they really want? Do they really want heaven? And Jesus wants to show through this parable, this story, that what they really wanted was, in fact, not heaven. What they really desired was, in fact, not the kingdom of God. So let's look at what he says. Um, Jesus says, "A "'A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, "'Come, for everything is now ready.'" But they all alike, okay, that's an important phrase, we'll come back to that, they all alike, they all as one, began to make excuses. Uh, <clears throat> they're invited to enter the kingdom, and, and back in those days, as much as it would work today, uh, when you invite somebody to a party, you first send out kind of the initial invitation, right? And usually it has some kind of card that you're required to RSVP, right? Which I have no idea what that means, but it means you better let them know you're coming, Right. So you click on some email or something or you send out a fill out the card, you send it back. You tell them that you're coming. Well, that's what happened here on the course without Internet. You know, they actually had to go in person and they would deliver it and they would wait for a response. And if you were inclined to go, you would reply back. Yes, I'm going to go to this banquet. In other words, in in the the picture that Jesus is painting here, he's asking, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be in the kingdom? And these are people who are the chosen ones of Israel, and they they think about um, their eternal destiny far, far away, and they go, yeah, you know, I'm guessing that when I die, I'm not going to have any better options. I'm not going to have anything better to do. Sure, I'll go. Because I think when the banquet comes, you know, I'm busy now, but when it comes, I won't have a lot going on, and it will be convenient for me, to be there, if nothing better is going on. So they reply, yeah, we're going. Uh, The way it would work in those days, uh, things took time and they didn't always work on kind of the tight, rigid calendar that we do. So the way it worked, when the banquet was all prepared and ready, they would send out the messenger again. They would say, hey, today is the day. The banquet's, the food is prepared, the banquet's ready, the hall is decorated. Uh, There is an elaborate feast for you. Come. And, and join in the banquet. And it's a picture of Jesus describing that the, the banquet, the kingdom that, that, that he is offering is not distant. It is currently presently available. If you want to come, the time to come and join is right now. Um, but, of course, what happens is as the servant goes out and makes the announcement that that the dinner is prepared, he meets with excuses, Right? First excuse, I bought a piece of land and need to check it out. Uh, how many of you have ever bought a house or a land? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you, poor like me, can't do it. It's okay. You have an inheritance in heaven. So, um, How many of you that bought land or house, bought at sight unseen? Anybody? Okay, one, two. Okay. What are the rest of you thinking about those two people? <laughs> All right, All right. It's like, who would do that? You're spending all this money on something you have never seen, right? Well, in Israel, it's, it's kind of true in our day, but in our day, you know, you can look at it on the Internet. You can, you can research about it. Maybe it's not quite as important to be there. But in, 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 in this day, in this age when Jesus lived, those options were not available. And uh, the land in Israel and Palestine is quite diverse, Some of it's extremely fertile and rich, good for growing things. Some of it you couldn't grow cactus. I mean, it's just rocky hillside steep. So surveying the land first was really important unless you were just really stupid and had money to waste, right? Believe me, you checked it out first. So this guy's excuse is quite lame, right? Uh, He's seen this land. He's probably seen it, in fact, 20 or 30 times. He's probably camped out. He's probably already walked every square inch of it, right? Uh, he doesn't need to go see it again. Um, but to him, his work uh, is of more interest and importance to him than the kingdom. It right? goes to the second person. He says, I have bought five teams of oxen, right? five yoke, five teams of oxen. Oxen in those days pulled plows and other equipment in teams of two. And the way it worked is that if the team was not evenly matched, you were just always going in circles, right? So it's important that you get your teams matched well so they pulled straight and, wouldn't, and would wear out e- equally, right? So he wants to check these out. Now, in this day, the average farmer had enough land that you could farm with one yoke of oxen, right? And the, the, the reasons are kind of obvious and practical. How many tractors can you drive at one time? Well, only one if there's only one of you, right? So you don't need five tractors, okay? You only need one tractor, and you farm what you can grow with with, with one tractor. Here's a guy who's got five tractors, five yoke of oxen, right? What does that mean? Well, that means that he's farming five times the amount of land that the average person would have held. This guy is extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy, right? Wealthy enough that if he can hire, uh, buy all those tractors, he can hire the guys to drive them. So he's got hired hands. Chances are with the money and wealth he has in the servants, he never actually plows with the oxen. What is he going to go check? He's got servants who can do this. Again, it's a very lame excuse. But to this man, his wealth is more important and of greater interest than the kingdom of God. Goes to the third guy. The third guy is the most despicable of all. He says, I just got married. Right now, here's the deal. Right? here's the deal. I don't care how newly wed you are. I don't care if, yeah. Uh, if you say to your wife, you know we've been married two whole days. Would you like to stay home and cook me dinner, or do you want to go to this extravagant banquet putting on by one of the wealthiest guys in the city, with dancing and ballroom, and we'll get all dressed up and we will have a feast. Which would you rather do? Right. I mean, if this lady finds out this guy passed on this, he's dead meat, right? I don't care how newlywed he is. It's not going to be a good night for him, right? Right? A Lame excuse. And also, actually, in that culture, quite rude, right? Quite rude to, to, um, to kind of give the implied intentions of what he's saying here. It's, it's crass and rude in that culture, um, But the same thing, you know, his woman, his wife is more important to him and of greater interest than the kingdom of God, right? Uh, The truth is, people think of heaven as a good thing and a blessing when it's far off and far away and the only other option is hell, right? But if we're talking about a kingdom that's available here and now today, and it's a choice between the kingdom here and now and. All the things that the world offers, my three W's, you know, I, I'm sorry, this is the best alliteration I come up with, you know, work, wealth, and women. It's my three, my three W's. It's from the story. I didn't make this up. Um, those are the things that people love more than the kingdom, right? Those are the things that they seek meaning and fulfillment and happiness in life, and they don't actually need or are interested in what God is offering in His kingdom. The truth is, Jesus is saying, yeah, blessed are those who eat at the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, you don't want that blessing. You are looking. He's speaking to the Jews and the Pharisees. He said, you think you want that, but it's not really what you want because here's the truth. This blessing is available for you here and now. Jesus came, as I said, um, he, was healing, he, he commanded his disciples, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you in Luke, uh, Luke 10. He says, with Jesus, the kingdom has come. And Jesus has been for the last several chapters in Luke speaking to the crowds and specifically battling it out with the Pharisees and with the Jewish leaders, saying to them, the choice is now. Right? The kingdom that you desire is not something you get when you die. It's come to you now. It's available to you now. But you've got to choose to enter in, and, it, and you enter through Christ. You enter through me. And there is no kingdom apart from the king. And so if you want the kingdom, you've got to forsake these other loves and things that are controlling your life and that you are living for. And you must choose Christ as the kingdom, as the king, and as the one who brings his rule on earth. <coughs> And with that, we can begin enjoying now the spiritual riches and blessing of God's kingdom. Right? One of the great pictures in this story is that the table of fellowship and celebration that Jesus invites us to is waiting for us today. Right? We don't have to endure our whole life before we can sit down in fellowship and communion with God through Christ. Um, But Jesus is making the point that the Pharisees and and the Jews in general are are making the fatal error of pursuing work, the world, wealth, the, the pleasures of this life. And they are passing by their opportunity to enter the banquet. And the point is that they really don't believe it. They don't really believe the statement, blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom. Really what they believe is blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom of this world and enjoys the pleasures and jo- joys of, of this life. Right? That, to them, was better. Those who have wealth and success and love this world. Um, so the story continues on. It says, um, in verse 18, uh, but they, they, let me say this again, it says, but they all alike began to make Excuses. They all alike. They all together. The word, the the phrase is literally with one. With one, they made excuses. With with one, what? Well, with one heart or with one mind, perhaps with one purpose. Uh, the point is, what they were doing was a group effort. Right? It was a group effort. It was somewhat of a conspiracy. And the conspiracy is this: if no one goes, there will be no party. Right. Uh, Jesus is saying that this is not just inconvenient for them. It's not just a matter of their own personal choice. But in fact, it is a conspiracy by these rulers that they are going to kill the party. They are going to make sure that this banquet does not happen. It's like uh, middle school girls, you know, who the most popular girl in the school finds out that one of the other girls is going to throw a party. And she, she, you know, she's jealous and she's mad and so she uses all of her influence to make sure that nobody goes, right? Well, that's, that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're plotting to make sure there is no party. So verse 21 um, says, so, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Okay, the, the host is angry, and he should be. As we said, each of these excuses are lame. But not only are they lame, but in especially in, in this culture, in Jesus' culture, they would have been extremely insulting. Right? Extremely insulting. In our world, uh, when you invite somebody to your party and they... And they give you some lame excuse. And you know it's a lame excuse. You just realize, you you know, you kind of get it. You just got dissed, you know. But whatever, right, whatever. Um, However, in, in Middle Eastern culture, it wasn't like that. To refuse an invitation like this was a public disgrace to the one who invited you. It was a bold and strong statement that not only are we not interested in you, We really are quite set to dishonor you. We want to shame you publicly and show to the world that we have no respect for you. And so it makes sense this guy's anger. He is furious. He is livid. He is outraged that not only will they not come, but that they will make this blatant disregard and disrespect for him and for what he is offering to them. He is furious um, and he has been uh, dishonored publicly by their conspiracy to put an end to what he's doing he is provoked to anger um, and what could he do as a result of this anger well it's interesting in Matthew's account of this what the guy does is he sends his soldiers out to go burn down their cities <laughs> that's angry right Luke takes a slightly different twist. Uh, he leaves that part of it out. Uh, although at the end, he makes it clear that they will not eat at the banquet, that they are forfeiting their invitation and they will not participate in the kingdom of God. Right? So there is still judgment. But but notice what happens. He is outraged by, by the plot. And, and the reality is that God has every right to be angry with us. Uh, it's not just the Pharisees and religious leaders who have refused God's, Love and affection. The reality is that every human being on planet Earth has done this since Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were brought into the banquet, the garden by God, and extended uh, every opportunity and access to his presence, to fellowship with him, to eat at his table, to enjoy all of his blessings. But what do they do? Well, they do the same thing that the guests do in this story. They refused that offer and they ate the forbidden fruit. They ate the one thing they desired, the one thing that was off limits to them. They chose that over what God offered them. They dishonored God by refusing his invitation. And every human being since then has done that. We have refused and rejected God's love. And we have turned and given our love and affection and devotion to other things to the work and the wealth and the women and the desires and pleasures and the things that this world offers. God has every right to be angry with us and to send out his judgment and destruction. But that's not what he does. (coughs) It says that he tells his, his servant, go out and bring in the poor and the crippled and the maimed and the blind and fill my house them. Um, in, in, in the Gospels, Jesus talks a lot about the, the poor. And as I said just before this, he talks about inviting the poor and the crippled and the maimed and the blind. Um, and uh, to really grasp the weight of this, you've got to understand that the Jews kind of had their own version of health and wealth prosperity gospel, which is really, you could also call it Jewish karma, right? <laughs> Uh, Same thing. Same thing. And this is what it looks like. And it's based on kind of a misunderstanding of the book of Deuteronomy. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, there's a lot about blessings and curses. And the way it worked is that God promised blessing on Israel if they were obedient and if they were faithful to him. But if they were disobedient and unfaithful, God promised curses. Well, they kind of worked this out in kind of uh, interesting logic. And it, it is somewhat logical, but misunderstanding what, 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 what God's really saying here, and it came out like this. Well, if God blesses good people, then the, the wealthier you are, the better your karma is, obviously the more God likes you. And the poorer you are, the more crippled you are, the more disabled, the more messed up you are, the more obviously God does not like you. And you have bad karma. Right? And so, um, so when Jesus says, go out and invite the poor, the crippled, the maimed, the blind, right? For the Jews, these were the outcasts of society. In fact, they took this so literally that, um, and then this is not in scripture, but it was their interpretation of the law that in the uh, community at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, there are scrolls stating that they, they taught and believed that none of these people in this group, they named these four categories, none of these people would ever get into heaven. Right? That basically, heaven was off limits. The kingdom was off limits for people with this kind of bad karma. Right? You were so under God's curse, it was proof that you would never be saved. You were outcasts from the religion, from the community and the culture. Right? Jesus says, Go invite those. Go call those outcasts. I want them to come to my banquet. And really, this is grace. And Jesus is not talking here just about literally poor people, uh, although he's including those. But what he's really talking about here is those who are in the depths of spiritual poverty, those who know they are outcasts and know they absolutely do not deserve or have any right to come to, into this house and celebrate at this dinner. Go to those who know that they are the last and least likely candidates to be invited and bring them in by my grace, not because they're worthy, not because they are deserving or good, but because of my kindness and grace. Because I want to fellowship with people and I want to celebrate my jo- the joy of my kingdom with those who will come. So Jesus proclaims here that the kingdom of God will be a kingdom of outcasts. Okay, a kingdom of outcasts. Uh, outcasts, those who are unworthy because they are um, spiritually poor. But not only that, he says, he goes on, he says, and not only that, the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. Um, <clears throat> the, the crippled and poor, I'm sure Jesus intended to be the outcasts who are outcasts, but still in Jewish society, right? But he takes it now to even another level. He says, I want you to go outside the city. I want you to go out to the highways where the foreigners travel up and down the road. Uh, Israel, Palestine was a real crossroads between Egypt and Mesopotamia and Greece and Rome and all these countries. There's a place where foreigners were constantly traveling through. He says, go out to those roads and I want you to invite the foreigners, the Gentiles, right? Those who are not only outcasts, but they're outsiders. They are not part of Israel. Invite them in. Go to the hedges. The hedge was a wall or a barrier built of bushes that was intended to divide and separate, right? He says, I want you to break down the barriers. I want you to break down those hedges. I want you to welcome those who are far outside the community of Israel. Uh, But as you go, he says there, uh, he doesn't say it, but he implies there are some entry requirements. He says, invite all who will come and who will enter. But the story teaches that there is one entry requirement to get in. What is it? Well, he says this. He says, he says, the ones who can come are the ones who are convinced they don't belong. Right. That's the entry requirement. In order to go, you have to be convinced that you should not go. Right? In fact, he says you need to compel them. You need to drag them. Why do you need to drag them? Well, one of the reasons, we'll talk more in a second, but one of the reasons why we have to drag them is because if they truly are one of these people, they would say, what? Invited to that palace, to that king's banquet? I don't belong there, right? There's no way he would invite someone like me. I'm filthy. I have no clothes. I have no money to buy the right kind of clothes. I I would be so out of place at a a banquet like that, right? I do not belong. And that's why they must be compelled, right? This is the heart of the gospel, right? Uh, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Right? It is essential that we understand the only way people get into the kingdom is by understanding fully and clearly their absolute unworthiness of it, that they are wicked, sinful people who do not deserve it, and it is only by God's grace that we can enter. What gospel do we preach and proclaim? Right? What is the gospel that we are putting out to the world, proclaiming to them of the kingdom? Sadly, I think all too often people preach a gospel of heaven. Um, maybe you could call it the gospel of the kingdom, and Jesus does that, but here's what I mean by it. Right? It is a gospel that says God is a loving God who wants you to go to heaven and be with him. Right? Is that true? Well, yeah, it's true. That's kind of what the story is about. He's inviting everybody. Uh, and you go and you proclaim to them, God wants you to go to heaven. Do you want to go? Well, yeah, sure. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Great. God says, if you just pray this little prayer, you're in. Is that the gospel? Please say no. <laughs> Please say no, right? That is not the gospel, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here to these Pharisees. Yeah, you think, You want to go to heaven, and God wants you to go to heaven, but you are not entering because you are not turning away from your love for the things of this world that make you unfit and unworthy for the kingdom. Right? Those people who had rejected and refused him had dishonored the king and by that had made themselves unworthy to be invited. And there's only those categories. Either with those who have refused his invitation or those who are just so bad, we know we would never be invited in the first place. There is no other category, right, to enter the kingdom. There is no such thing as being so good and having your life so together that you somehow merit or deserve the kingdom. But sadly, what we do is we create converts who are certain they are going to heaven on the simple basis that they want to and God's nice, right? That is not the gospel, right? Because your desire to go to heaven is not the prerequisite. In fact, it's quite the opposite. That, yeah, you went to go to heaven, but you realize you have no place there because you are a sinner, because you are wicked and filthy and undeserving of his, of his favor and his blessing. That is an essential requirement To entry. That's what Jesus is saying here. Until these religious leaders and Pharisees and for anybody, until they realize they are among the poor, the crippled, the maimed, the outcasts and the outsiders, you cannot and will not enter the banquet, the kingdom. Um, There is no such thing as we know of deserving salvation. Salvation. There's no such thing as people getting into heaven because they're good, upright, moral people. Sadly, God will send upright, good-standing, moral people to hell for the very reason that they are convinced they are that kind of person. And they are convinced they do not need God's grace or mercy or forgiveness. Uh, The gospel is this. He says, go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Compel. It's kind of a hard word. Uh, This word back throughout the centuries has been used and understood to mean force people into heaven by the sword. Okay? Um, And this was practiced in in several periods in history where people went out with the sword and said, convert to Jesus or die. I don't think that's really what Jesus had in mind, although it is effective. (laughs) To fill your church, if your sword is bigger than their sword, it works. Somehow, though, I don't really think that's what Jesus was saying here. What does he mean when he says, compel them? Well, maybe a better word would be, persuade them. Persuade them. Well, the question is, why do they need persuading? What is it they need to be persuaded about? Well, If you are blind and crippled and poor, if you are a beggar sitting at the gate who knows you have absolutely no business going to a banquet of a king, right? and somebody comes to you and says, as you're in your beggar clothes uh, on the steps of the city, hoping for a coin, and he says to you, you have been invited by the king to the banquet. Get up and go in right now. What would you say? You would say, you're out of your mind. I don't believe you. Right? Why would the king want me? Well, the king is a loving good king. He's gracious. He is doing it because he wants to bless people like you. I can't believe that, right? I cannot believe that God would love somebody as horrible as me. It takes some persuading. Um, outsiders need to be persuaded. Uh, that even though they don't deserve it, it's open to them. Um, they need to be persuaded sometimes that they are outsiders, right? Part of our task in proclaiming the gospel is to bring people to an understanding that they are sinful, that they are under God's wrath, that they have made God super angry, right? We need to persuade them that their goodness is not enough, Um But here's, I think, the the main point of the story. In this story, who is the servant? Well, uh, it's, it's most likely, I believe, that the servant is Jesus himself, right? The banquet is being put on by his father, and the father is inviting everybody into his kingdom. And he says to his servant, his son, Jesus, I want you to go out and I want you to persuade them that I love them, that even though they are unworthy I am calling them into my kingdom. And so Jesus came and he taught and he labored to convince the Jews and and everyone who would listen of God's great love for them. That even though they were unworthy, uh, God was inviting them into relationship within his kingdom. But as we know, they did not listen. They were not convinced and persuaded even by Jesus himself even by his teaching. And at the end, even his disciples uh, left him, right, as he was arrested and drug away. So how did Jesus persuade us? Well, he persuaded us by going to the cross, right, to demonstrate God's love for us. That even though we were sinful and so unworthy, God loved us so much he sent his son to die in our place, right? to persuade us of how serious God is about inviting us and welcoming us into relationship with him in his kingdom. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate persuasion. And through the cross, he is compelling people. He is beseeching and pleading with people through the cross and through his sacrifice to enter the kingdom, to come and sit at the table with him in fellowship and communion. But this is far beyond just getting saved, right? It's a truth for salvation, and it's critical that we preach a gospel that communicates this well, right? That uh, you, you must own that you are a sinner before you can really own and understand God's love and His grace. It all makes no sense if you don't own your unworthiness. But it's also vitally that we as disciples live this out daily, right? that we live this out daily. Um, Are you a sinner or a saint? Trick question, right? How do you answer that? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I am. That's right. We are, through Christ, we are saints. Right? But we were sinners. And we have been made saints by absolutely nothing of our own doing, right? It is fully through the righteousness of, and the blood of Christ that we are made what we are. It's vitally important that we live that out every day as disciples, that we are not good people. There are not people who have, since we got saved, we got it all so together so much, that now we do deserve the kingdom, right? No. We don't deserve it any more today than we ever did, right? We are still as undeserving, because as we know, we still sin and rebel against God. We still come up with lame excuses why other things are more important to us than God, right? We are unable in our own strength and power to be good. And it's vital that we live this out daily, that we live out continually the gospel, that we are sinful people made saints through the blood of Christ. Uh, That produces in us, well, you know, the other option is that we try to be good people. We try to be like the Pharisees. We try to justify our worthiness or our merit of the kingdom. And here's the deal. One produces deeply humble people. The other produces extremely proud people. Right? We should be people who are so broken by our own sin and our own unworthiness that we could not imagine putting ourselves over anybody. Right? It should be a huge humility that characterizes our life because we know what we are apart from Christ. One creates people who are extremely dependent on God. The other produces people who are stubbornly independent and self-reliant. Are we people who desperately need God? Are are we people who are convinced we can do this on our own? That's the difference. Um, Third, Um, this has huge implications for what the mission of our life is. Do we exist so that we can be good people and impress God and others with our stellar character? Well, God should be producing that stellar character in us, but that's not our mission. That's God's task, right? We should be living for God's glory and our life should be conformed to his likeness, but that's God's work, not ours. What is our work? Well, our work is to go out to the highways and the byways and the hedges and to proclaim to people that God is inviting them in. Uh, We can't compel like Jesus did, but we should be persuading people to know that they are sinful creatures before God, but that God invites them in in any way through the blood of Christ. We should be faithfully proclaiming to the world that God wants them. He longs for their uh, fellowship, even though they're sinful, and to live that out day by day. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.